0: Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershack. Today we'll be speaking with Oliver Traldi. Oliver is a P- philosophy PhD candidate at Notre Dame, as well as an essayist and columnist for ARC Digital. We're talking today about the state of the intellectual dark web. We talked about the origins of the IDW, who's in it, whether it's still a thing, possible points of failure in trying to have the open discussion, the paradox of anti tribalism, the regressive left. Platform Wars, Symbiosis of Polarization, The Threat of the Far Right, The Dissident Left, and The Populist Realignment. Strap in, the audio on this track is sketchy in some parts, and unfortunately Oliver was experiencing some connectivity issues that interrupted the conversation. I will never cut out dialogue from a conversation with a guest, but I did my best to splice and edit the patchy parts of this talk together. So please bear with us for any roughness in the sound. Uh, I thought it was a worthwhile conversation to broadcast nonetheless. As usual, if you're a fan of the show, if you listen to the show, if it's adding value to your life and you want to hear more conversations like this, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Without further ado, I give you Oliver Traldi. Welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershay. Today I'm speaking with Oliver Traldi. Oliver is a PhD candidate. In philosophy at Notre Dame University, as well as a writer and essayist, a columnist for Arc Digital. Oliver, welcome to uh, Agora
1: Politics. Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm really, really glad to have you on. Um, just a little bit of background on how we got introduced to each other. You and I actually only know each other from Twitter. Um, that's primarily where we've interacted and corresponded, and we have uh, a lot of mutually overlapping interests as well as contacts uh, in that, in that realm of the online space. So, um, I was prompted to invite you on the show because I had read a a review that you wrote, um, on, uh, for, for national review online on the limits of Dave Rubin's cultural politics. Uh, and that review, uh, for one, it pointed out some things to me that I had sort of thought in my own head, but I hadn't actually articulated yet (laughs) about Dave Rubin. And we'll get into that later. Um, But more than that, it it brought to mind this question of what is the state of the intellectual dark web right now as a as an idea, as a movement, as a group, Um, because it seems to me like it's sort of fraying uh, in multiple ways. And I'm not sure that the original intent of the group as it was sort of idealized or created uh, is necessarily existent anymore. And so I wanted to work through that problem with you in real time here. Ah, uh, in front of the front of the audience, and also just get your perspective. You know, obviously as an individual, on uh, on the state of that movement, what you think about it. I know you've written critically as well about um, Jordan, P- Jordan Peterson and some yeah. others. And obviously, in this article on Dave Rubin, with which I'm referring to, you also bring up Brett Weinstein and and some of the other people that are sort of mm-hmm. um, loosely or or in various ways connected to to this group. So I guess. Before we get into that, do we want to just go over real quick what the intellectual dark web is? I don't know. Do you have a quick quip to say about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I actually think in a way it's a good question because um, the you know the question of who's in it when it started and stuff is not you know it's not particularly well defined. Not that these sorts of labels always are. Obviously, so yeah, so well, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, depending on what the listeners already know, but there, uh, one of the sort of founding events was a New York Times article written by Barry Weiss in, um, I think it was early 2018, maybe March of 2018, or something like that. Um, and that had included uh brett weinstein as you said and his brother eric um claire lemon the editor of quillette uh dave rubin as we said jordan peterson as we said sam harris um ben shapiro michael Shermer, uh the editor of skeptic magazine and maybe maybe a few others who have forgotten
0: yeah so the the core group was sort of
1: um these
0: i guess Independent thinkers or I guess primarily they, they coalesced around critiques of the left or excesses. Yeah, of left yeah. Politics.
1: Yeah. So I should. Uh, yeah. So the, fir- the start. The first thing I should have said is um, everybody in this space, the people who are in the article, as well as the people who weren't. And I include myself in this um, as well as some of the people who have been critical of like, you know, like Jordan Peterson and like uh, like James Lindsay. Um, uh, That's interesting. Peter, I wouldn't. And Peter wouldn't, who has their a, book. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I was just going to say they have their book uh, on the impossible conversations, which is largely a book about kind of how to address these political conversations and how to kind of open up a space to talk about uh, ideas from social justice. Um, so where? Sorry, where should I pick up again? Um
0: you were elaborating on kind of the members of the intellectual dark web and the way it had gotten started. I have some additional things to say about it, but I was going to let you finish.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. So I I think the main thing I was going to say, which which I should have started with was um, just that, you know, one of the unifying features of this group, which is also, you know, it's also true of me, even though I'm also critical of some of the members of the group is that I, everybody kind of writes critically of what you might call the identity politics left or the social justice left. Um, there's some skepticism about, um, about anti-racism. Uh, so for example, Coleman Hughes, and not, not, that, not, that, not that they're people who are proponents of racism, but there's some skepticism of anti-racism
0: Coleman Uh, Hughes is black, by the way. Yeah, so
1: so yeah, Coleman Hughes and uh, John McWhorter have written about anti-racism as a kind of religion. Um, There's some skepticism of feminism. Uh, So, oh yeah, so Christina Hoff Summers was in the original article, and she's been a skeptic of what she calls uh, gender feminism uh, since the 1990s. Um, uh, And so that's another interesting thing, which is that, uh it's not clear kind of how much of what's going on in this space is new um versus how much is kind of recapitulating uh culture wars that are, are already kind of full throttle in the 90s um yeah sorry that's that's a little bit of a digression so i'll let you sure
0: that. well yeah. So actually, this is an interesting place to start because I think you and I actually have slightly different conceptualizations of uh, the uh, what the IDW is and even who's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, from from my mind, I felt like the group was a little bit more limited to um, more or less the people that were mentioned in that first New York uh-huh. Times article. Um, As I understand it, it originated with Eric Weinstein, who coined it, um, I believe, actually originally on a podcast with Sam Harris, and then made it sort of uh, more popularized by appearing on Joe Rogan later. And the New York Times article, I believe, was actually um, written shortly after that Joe Rogan appearance. Um, And and I would say that Barry Weiss is even, you know, somewhat... I mean, she's not really technically in the group because insofar as they define themselves as being outside of mainstream institutions, right? being in the New York Times means that you can't um, fit that definition, but uh, she's definitely a huge node in terms of trying to, uh, I guess, expose or shed light on this, I guess, uh, um, decentralized collective that's right. attempting to reboot sense making. Um, so I, I actually view the intellectual dark web as less a um, explicitly anti social justice left political mm-hmm. project and more of an epistemological project. It All seems right. to me like the common thread, um, you know, the reason why free why freedom of speech is so important with this group um, across the board, even though they have very different political ideologies, uh, seems to be this idea of, well, we can't throw away the tools and the culture that we have that's allowed us to make the progress that we've made so far. And they view these um, aggressive strains of left-wing ideology as, uh, I I would say, anti-civilizational in that they, you know, the the postmodern aspects of it that embrace sort of emotionality and reject Mm -hmm. logic and reason and the ability to Um, even understand one another on any real basis. Uh, Those are those to me seem like the the things that they're actually most interested in preserving. Um, And it it also seems to me that the group was originally, you know, it it was by design meant to include people on the left and the right. So you've got Uh Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, who are uh, higher, who are both, um, you know, lifelong progressives, almost communist level lefties. I mean, they come Uh from a communist family. They both say that. Um, and uh, on the other side, you've got people like Ben Shapiro, who's sort of a, you know, neocon, and, and you've got Jordan Peterson, who's more of a, a traditionalist uh, in many ways, even though he sort of has a very solid materialist grounding um, in science. Uh, but the, the issue, so there, there are two core issues that I wanted to bring up with you about mm-hmm. whether or not the intellectual dark web as it was imagined still exists. When Eric Weinstein coined the term, he said that they were the vanguard and that this was going to be mm-hmm. the first group of people that were going to step out and say something. And I do agree that many of the people in this group were saying things that other people are just now coming around to, in some cases, three or uh-huh. four years later, that people were just afraid to say or unwilling to say because they didn't think it was so much of a big problem. Um, and so I, I want to give them credit for that. But in terms of it being a non-ideological, explicitly non-political project, that's where that's the first point where I think they're starting to fail, and where uh-huh. it's really frayed. Um, and I think Dave Rubin is the the primary example of that, because he's somebody yeah. that I've seen transform from his original sort of um, play, which was basically, you know. I was a lefty my whole life. I was involved in the Young Turks and I was betrayed by the left. That was sort of what I got from Dave when I first started following him um, years ago, which was uh, here was the guy who was sort of disillusioned Mm -hmm. with what he thought were liberal ideals that were on that were shared by the people who he thought were on his side, quote unquote. And then he found himself, as he often says, politically homeless. Right. Right. And so Yeah, there's that's this... a phrase.
1: Yeah, a lot of us felt that way maybe five years ago or so. It's yeah. something I've talked about with like uh, other kind of IDW adjacent people, like Kathy Young, Lowry. Mm-hmm. It's a phrase. It's a phrase that people used. Um, so I think what I would say is there's sort of two ways in which this avoidance of politics can break down. And before I talk about that, I should also say that one critique of the idw the conceptual critique, will give which the idea that like you can't avoid politics there's avoiding politics politics is like in everything that i don't like that idea is like one of my main that's something that i try to attack whenever i feel that i can find it um i don't think politics is in everything i think you can avoid politics um but that doesn't mean that it's easy, and it doesn't mean that people are always successful at it. So there's two ways that you can kind of fail at it. Um, the big, which I think is what we've seen with Ruben, is that, so so take this group that kind of is around this open discussion, and they feel that this open discussion is sort of tamped down by, uh, you know, by this group, the, the social justice or identity politics crowd, um, or the part of the left, what does Dave call it, the, the regressive left, you know, the part of the left that made him leave the left, right? Um, so the really bad thing that can happen is that you decide that this group is really bugging you and is making it harder to talk honestly about certain topics, and you just kind of shift against them on every topic, not just the topics where they made it hard to talk about, But you just sort of push back against them on everything. And in a way, I feel that that's what happened with Rubin. Rubin, you know, for a while, he would say things like, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I still have left-wing politics. I still, you know, I still like Bernie Sanders. I still want universal health care and things like this. My only concern is that the left has been consumed by this anti-free speech stuff, this social justice and that's what I'm pushing back against. Read his book. That is no longer what he says, right? He's sort of become basically a libertarian. Um, and he's sort of become a libertarian reaction uh, to to leaving this one group and joining this other group, right? Um, and so that's one way in which it can be political, which is just that if you leave one group of people for another, then... You know, you're going to adopt some beliefs of the new group uh, and leave some beliefs that were common in the old group. Um, yeah, that's that's the idea of, you know, that's one way. So so this connects with idea, another kind of critique and with the IDW. So there's we talked about this idea of political homelessness. Um, another way of saying that is. Well, so the intellectual dark web kind of phrases its critique of political culture in some ways as being about what they call tribalism, or I should say what we call tribalism, right? Or anti-tribalism. Yeah, anti-tribalism, exactly. So what do we mean by tribalism? Well, it just means, you know, you kind of your own. uh, There's people in your political group and they can kind of do no wrong and people on the other side can't do anything right and you just sort of assume you can never talk to the people on the other side you can never have a good debate and you never need to reconsider your own views like that right um so politics is just this kind of war group against group there's certain groups on the left certain groups on the right then when you get into these conversations with new people you sort of take on some of their beliefs um and that's just kind of human nature and the other way the other way in which the kind of critique of politics can fail is I think a matter of focus. And this one is kind of a lot harder to manage and it's not something that I'm good at managing myself. It's a lot harder to manage what you focus on. It's not something I'm good at myself. Um, so a lot of people like you know, like Brett Weinstein and like me to a certain extent, um, you know we come into the the idw whether it's the small idw like brett is in or the kind of idw diaspora or whatever you would call it that i'm in um and we say look we're we're lefties you know we like bernie sanders we think it would be good if everybody got health care but we also are opposed to this regressive stuff we also are in favor of free speech and stuff like that um, and then kind of what happens is well we don't really ever talk about the lefty stuff because we're sort of really into this other stuff. For some reason, that's what grabs us, right? It really interests me, kind of on a on a personal and intellectual level, to be in these arguments with um, with the with the more regressive elements of the left, right, and to explain mm-hmm. why I think they're wrong about things. Um, and to kind of level my critiques of their ideas and things like that. Um, whereas my, my interest, you know, my interest in universal healthcare is not something that I have, like, much to say about. It's, it determines how I vote, but, like, ultimately, how you vote, it's just something you do, you know, for most of us, it's just something you think about for a little while and then you do once a year, right? Or even less than that, um, for a lot of us. And, uh, so... There's there's a kind of difficulty with focus there because, you know, am I really on the left if I spend, you know, if I spend 364 days a year focusing on these critiques and then I have one day where I focus on, you know, voting for somebody who's on the left? Um, So that's that's another way in which the kind of the supposed universality of the IDW project can fail is if... um, you know if it is if the progressives and the lefties involved in it kind of lost the ability to focus on that aspect of beliefs and we should note that like the the right-wingers in the idw have that ability right like ben shapiro it's not like he can no longer think about all the political topics he's interested in and, and he can only think about uh crit- you know critiquing social justice he can still think about any element of politics, right? He still talks about libertarianism in all of its guises, you know, he can still talk and spend a lot thinking about gun control and healthcare policy and things like that. Um, and it's just this strange thing that happens to people who kind of come to the IDW from the left, where you sort of lose the ability to to focus on these other issues.
0: Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely found myself, uh, you know, going through lots of different political transitions. I think the most disappointing thing for me is when you're somebody who feels like you, you know, either are in the IDW or you're part of the IDW diaspora or you're sort of the next generation of people who are trying to take on a platform, um, right. and you see someone like Dave Rubin who goes from saying, "I'm politically homeless." You know, it sucks not having a tribe. It's really lonely out here. Yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, and of course it is. You are vulnerable. You are exposed. You are likely to get crushed if you go up against something large and you don't have anyone right. else around you. Um, but when I, you know, when, when you're moving through your own phases on this, and I've certainly um, had a, a large political transition from what I would say is my exodus from the left. And right now I, I wouldn't even consider myself to be on the left. Although I do think the the left-right dynamic uh, is a little outdated anyway. Um, and so yeah, there's yeah. sort of a post-political project that we're all kind of involved in now. Um, but when I, when I see someone like Dave, who was a big inspiration initially, and who was to actually create this really successful platform, The Rubin Report, which has, like, I think, a million mm-hmm. subscribers on YouTube. Like, it's huge. Um, yeah, it's
1: incredibly successful.
0: Yeah, and and now when I, when I see someone like that going to, like, TPUSA events, uh-huh. then, and, like, you know, getting paid to go speak with Charlie Kirk, it's kind of like right, yeah. you really lose faith in whether or not there is a genuine post-political sort of can we move past tribalism project happening because it seems to me like he just he felt that uncertainty, he felt that fear. And then instead of and, and, and by the way, I don't want to make this show about crapping on Dave Rubin. I have a lot of respect right. for what he's done. Um, he, it it really makes you lose hope as a as someone who is following this guy that anybody is actually going to be able to <clears throat> That, that the IDW is going to is genuinely committed to what they're saying they're going to do, but but that anybody can actually do it. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, um, Yeah, so the question of whether anybody can actually do it, I mean that it's a difficult one. you know we think about just you know what would it look like if somebody was um, would they just not talk about politics at all or would they talk about politics in a different way? Um, one thing in particular, I do I do agree that, you know, I, I think it's best to avoid, nobody should treat Rubin as though, so I think, that, you know, a lot of people in the IDW have been critical of Rubin, right? Um, Brett Weinstein has, you know, I think Sam Harris, maybe just a little bit, um, Quillette has written critical articles of him. Uh, and I think that although a lot of the critiques are correct, I also think they're convenient because, you know, what happened to Reuben is just sort of like a a more obvious version of the difficulties that everybody had kind of in this space. Um, and there's a, there's a little bit there's a little bit of um, you know you critique if you want to be an anti-tribalist and you start worrying that actually the IDW is just a new political tribe that you're in, well, it's good to, you know, okay, if, you know, well, in that case, if I were really so tribalistic, would I be able to throw this guy in my tribe under the bus? No. So therefore I'm not tribalistic. Right. Um, So I think there's a sort of, there's a sort of performativity to, to, um, to going too hard after. And, you know, the other thing, so hard after him is like he's not he's not really you know and this was obvious reading his book he didn't become well known for having any of his own ideas right he became well known for having a good idea of who to bring on his show and having a skill at drawing other people's ideas out of him right he was he's always been a great interviewer um seems to be like a charming you know, guy in person kind of inspires personal loyalty from the people he interviews.
0: I mean, I'll just um, say it. my, my frustration with Ruben is just that when you're watching him, um, it, it's, it's out of all the IDW thinkers. I mean, it, it really feels like you're just getting a high school civics lesson, uh, right? with some libertarianism thrown in. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I understand he he's had some really, you know, uh, Interesting guests on, Um, but in general, you don't get a lot of generativeness out of Ruben in the same way you get out of some of the IDW members. Although I will say that you know it's not like Joe Rogan is necessarily opining on political discourses either. You know the fact that he's in this group again is more uh, related to the fact that he has this large platform and he's sort of independent, which. We can get into that. That seems to be closing. Um, uh, not not that he's necessarily uh, uh, an
1: intellectual of any kind. Right. Yeah, the end. Of, the, the thing about platforms, um, I think, is interesting because, you know, a couple of years ago, so you had Ruben growing and you had Rogan growing, you had Quillette growing, right? And you had a bunch of people, other people kind of trying to start their own things, Um And I think things looked very hopeful for new platforms a couple of years ago. Um, I'm not sure how great now, right? Like, I'm not sure things can look very good if a lot of these new platforms are starting and then suddenly it can look like, oh, well that's kind of all the oxygen that was in the room, right? So it may be that kind of like all of the energy and all of the, you know, anybody who would wanna donate money anybody who would want to subscri- like pay for a subscription or anything. Um, it, it may have been that all those people were kind of already all that space was kind of already taken up, you know, in early 2018. And there just was like, no, there was no room for expansion after that. And that's very hard to pre- know that. Um, okay. So I don't, you know, I don't talk business strategy with, with people who run these platforms, but you can kind of tell when one of these, um platforms is kind of trying to expand to a new audience when they're kind of trying to find new donors in a new way and things like that um and i don't know i don't know how they've been and that's not to say like i think quillette well, has been incredibly successful it has an incredible um publishes a lot of really really interesting articles um and i think their question is just you know uh at what point are there no longer, you know, at what point have you found your readers and and it's going to be difficult to find any more. Um, one thing to say right now, and I know we're going to mostly avoid current politics, but given the topic of, you know, of media independence, it's very hard to in the current moment. Um, so one of the, you know, Quillette started kind of in uh, around. So I think of the founding of Quillette as kind of like the, the start of the intellectual dark web in a way. Um, Oh, interesting. I I feel like they sort of just happen to intersect. Happen to intersect. Yeah. Maybe maybe your, your position is probably sophisticated than mine. Um, but just to use Quillette as an example, you know, Quillette, Claire founded Quillette in, I think early 2015 or maybe 2015. Um, and in the U.S. at least, you had all, at that point, you had all these campus protests going on. Um, you had Trump starting to run for office. You had Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and I think for a lot of people, Quillette provided this, this new independent platform uh, for me to think through these things and to question some things that we, for whatever reason, hadn't kind of had the stomach to question on our own. Um, Not that we were necessarily changed our minds, but we thought critically through the issues. Um, And uh, so that was during one series of protests. Now in the US, we're experiencing another series of protests. Um, And I think, so I think there's two tacks you might take. Um, You know, one thing you might say is actually like the current protests, you know, they demonstrate in a way the strength of the dark web, right? Because actually a lot of, you know, intellectual dark web critiques are getting a lot of play, especially the, something you've seen published in a lot of places recently. Um, and it does seem to to dovetail with some of the images that you see um, from from the current wave of protests. But in terms of providing the independent platform and the kind of media business of the media analysis of it all um i don't know if i don't know the intellectual dark web in any way at the moment is providing sort of like a robust platform for discussion of dissenting views um on on the current wave of protests, you know, police brutality or whatever issue. I don't know if there's I don't know if they've made any headway into the kind of critical mass of of uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, regret or the social justice consensus or anything like that. It's not like I can go and uh, go to one of my, you know, more social judgment friends and say, hey, you know, I saw that thing you posted on Facebook, but like, here's an article arguing with it, you know, maybe this will change your mind. That's not, you know, that level of kind of cultural capital has not been developed. Um, mm. And uh, I think it's more, it's more sort of to kind of organize and kind of link together a group of people who already had this desire to be to be critical of some of these narratives and to kind of think through their beliefs on some of these issues in a different sort of way. Um, but sort of like I would, once you get that group of people, it's, you know, it's unclear how just how many of us there are and how you're going to make headway into the, the broader culture. And when you look at the things happening at the New York Times, you know, we were talking about Barry Weiss, that New York Times article about the intellectual dark web two years ago. Well, who knows how much longer Barry Weiss has at the New York Times, right? The editor who hired her was fired for publishing the Tom Cotton editorial, right? Um, The, they are going to, there is going to be almost certainly a new pattern of hiring people for political orthodoxy in in the current moment um with the current protests going on and uh, and hiring people for their focus on taking a certain line on social justice issues so i think right now there is a question about just what just what role should the IDW be playing in pushing back against some of these dynamics? And um, and frankly, have they or we put themselves or ourselves into a position where they're even capable of fulfilling that role?
0: Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, so I would agree with you there that I don't think that they've built up uh, any kind of critical mass. Um, the... You know, it seems like the Eric Weinstein's podcast, The Portal, has been doing quite well and is a really successful endeavor. Um, Sam Harris has used his independent platform to talk a little, to talk about the, the protests and the recent, um, you know, race relations and the politics surrounding uh-huh. that quite a bit. Uh, I, I do agree, though, that like the strategy, for example, that I see like James Lindsay taking um, Where, with new discourses, they're just sort of trying to produce as much. I mean, really, it's propaganda, but it's sort of anti woke propaganda right. um, for you to share a, as much as possible. Um, and him going and saying, oh, well, you know, if your employer, I think there was some tweet today that people were arguing about where he was saying, you know, if your employer is putting you through a diversity training, like these are like the questions that you can ask to sort of start try- prying your way you know into some sort of right a uh, discussion with them and uh I would have to agree with you there that I actually you know I, I I myself have had to refrain from trying to share information that I'm convinced would logically dispel some of these some of these things some of these ideologies mm-hmm. from people that I know on social media on Facebook and elsewhere right um and the reason is just because uh, people don't actually care about facts. You know, uh-huh. the, the gist of it is you're not going to convince somebody who doesn't want to be convinced. And so um, it, at this point, it seems to me like it's more damaging to my career prospects, to my social relationships, to uh, other things for me to take this moment to go on a campaign right and try to get all these ideas out here that i've been telling people about for the last three years and everyone's been saying i'm crazy uh (laughs) it's it's more useful instead to take some kind of alternative approach and almost ignore it entirely and just keep creating the things that i want to create yeah um and that's my attitude right now moldbug actually talked about this recently um on a podcast uh with michael malice he was talking about just detachment Mm -hmm. like to oppose the system is actually to keep feeding the dynamic where they're sort of feeding off of each other, and I think this is what happened with Ruben a little bit. Like he needs the SJWs to exist because they feed yeah, off of each sure. other. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get you get this mutual. Not the. I mean, I don't know much about Moldbug, um, and, uh, or Michael Malice actually. Yeah. So actually, so yeah. So two things I should say. First thing I should say is, yeah, I think in a sense, you know, okay, uh, you know. I don't get along with James, so maybe I'm being too critical. But look, if you say to somebody here, like here's I've had how- James on the show, so it's uh-huh. friends. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's a sense in if you if you say to somebody here, you know, just this impossible conversation with the person, your diversity training in your workplace in the current, you know, in the current climate. Uh, you should think about the fact that you may be responsible for that person losing their job, right? You know, it may not be a good idea for somebody to start that conversation in the current climate. It may yeah, actually it be may, It
0: easy. may not be hard, easy for them to get another one, or set up their own. platform. Yeah, that's
1: where you. That's where you might need some of the old leftism if you want to give a critique of the current economy, um, or not. You know, depending on maybe it's just you know coronavirus is obviously making it very hard to find a job right now um and the other thing i was going to say is the dynamics of so this is something that has interested me since kind of just from starting out with watching trump really in 2015 and 2016. the dynamics of mutual radicalization and the symbiotic relationship between the extremes and i'm not giving a horseshoe theory just to be clear I'm not saying that there's agreement between people who are on the one side and people who are on the other side. Um, I'm not really talking about extremists. What I'm talking about is dynamic whereby people point to side as a threat, and the more you convince somebody that the other side is a threat, the more they come to your side for protection. But then, if the saying that your side is a threat, they see your. Side larger and other people also go to the other side for the protection right so i think this is an underrated element of polarization this sort of symbiotic relationship between the you know what you might call the tribes or the sides or whatever um and this is certainly um and people recognize it when they're not the ones doing it right like this was a sometimes people recognize this dynamic where it doesn't probably exist so when trump was running for office in 2016 there was this the democrats would say they would say trump is isis's best recruiter right you don't hear this line anymore nobody talks about isis anymore um where they would say isis's best recruiter because of all the you know horrible things he says about muslims right um well you know that might not be true but i definitely think it's true that there was a sense in which social justice people were Trump's best recruiters. Um, and also a sense in which, like, Trump was like the social justice people's best recruiters, right? When you see somebody talking ways that make you feel like you're going to going to lose your job, um, but you're going to be sent to some sort of re-education camp to learn about, you know, all the microaggressions that you're doing all the time or something like that.
0: The value um, of inclusion.
1: Yeah, and stuff like that. Um, or even, you know, if you feel like your job is going to be um, at stake because of all these diversity trainings and, you know, new kind of rules about who's even allowed to have a job, um, then you start saying, okay, I need to align myself against this. And this goes back to what we were talking about, this the difficulty in keeping your focus when you join a group like the IDW. The IDW is an oppositional group, right? Like we saw this dynamic. And we became a lot of our emotional and mental energy became dedicated to pushing back against it. And is not necessarily energy that you can just place to think about something else, right? Um, and people want to have energy, right? Like people want to be moved by things in the world. People want to be involved in a struggle or in a conflict that they think is going to make the world a better place and that they think is kind of characteristic that they live in oh so, yeah so that's just to say this dynamic of mutual radicalization I think it's going to continue um, I think there's going to continue to be this this symbiotic relationship um, and uh, maybe that's good news for the intellectual dark web right because maybe what it means is you know for every you know for every statue that comes down a few new people start reading Quillette or something like that. Who knows? Um, but uh, it doesn't... Ne- it's not necessarily good for... So maybe it's good for the IDW on the business side. It's not necessarily good on the side of finding a space where people can hash out the issues and actually talk to each other um, because it creates this... Uh, the just, not not create, but um it fuels this very oppositional dynamic
0: Hmm. yeah so i guess that is a that is a problem um is how can they uh oppose sort of one side of the spectrum without increasing the polarization um yeah you know like this show is supposed to be we're trying to um we're trying to figure out how we can get out of this Uh, I mean, really, these are all just various game theoretic traps, right, that we're falling into where um, you get sort of iterated prisoner's dilemmas. You have issues with, um, you know, tragedies of the commons and so on and so forth. And um, one of the things that's uh, come out for me, though, is uh, just like, I don't I don't I don't necessarily know that when a new statue gets torn down or when someone sees some crazy uh, you know like like right now there's a Michigan State professor Uh, my my undergrad is in Michigan State I have class Mm -hmm. of 2020
1: Um, and congratulations
0: thank you yeah it's been a very eventful graduation
1: Uh, yeah it's been a strange time yeah there's this Michigan State professor Steven
0: Su, who's Mm -hmm. Chinese professor and people uh, physicist uh, and, and and there's a campaign right now to get him fired
1: Right. Right. And uh, I don't removed from an administrative position. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And 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 and, uh, and Claire Lemon and the Quillette people have uh, come in and, and backed him up and they've actually got a counter petition going mm-hmm. that's been signed by a lot of different prominent academics uh, and professors. And um, it, it just it's always seemed to me like, well, the IDW could spend more time, let's say, calling out the right. Which they don't actually spend a lot of time on, um, no. and, and their argument, their argument is, well, the the right wing, the problem of right wing extremism is being overblown, mm-hmm. and it's being overblown by by this exact group that we're against, which are these yeah. identitarian leftists, and what we're actually trying to do is as our meta project, is stop the identitarian leftists from making our entire political landscape. Um, Saturated with identity politics because that will bring right. on the far right identity politics, which has always been my
1: view. Um, and I oh, yeah, think- I certainly think it's true. Yeah, yeah. that's if that's just the same symbiosis and the same mutual radicalization that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if you 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 can't have you can't have you know identity politics of of without at least some. Elements of the majority thinking that they should get their own identity politics. Yeah, that's, uh, it's that's just miserable.
0: it's just delusional to think that you're going to convince white people to not have their own identity politics. Yeah. By telling them that they're that that's racist. It's just not going to work.
1: Yeah. The way you would do it, if you if you you, know, you could have you could convince them of ideas like liberal individualism and color blindness and things like that. And, uh, you know, I tend to think some of those ideas, you know. Uh, are underrated by the current social justice left, right? Some of those ideas uh, had made a lot of headway and had, you know, had made progress in people's thinking about members of, of, you know, of other groups. And, uh, um, you know, I think that throwing the baby out with the bathwater that the that the, you know, that the identity politics crowd did. Um, and I think actually some of them would acknowledge that as well. Some of them would say look, you know, it's true that we tried to replace colorblindness and maybe some of the things that replaced it were, you know, were worse than it. You know, that's something they're willing to acknowledge. Um, but I think I interrupted you.
0: Oh, well, I mean, no, I, I definitely agreed with that. All I was, all I was saying was that, so, so one of the things that got me started on, on Twitter, actually, I mean, I was originally there to study, like, computer science stuff, but <laughs> that's besides the point. Um, when I, when I started getting concerned about the identity left, I also started to explore what was going on in the dissident, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll just use the dissident right as a catch all phrase for far right or alt right or whatever, whatever you want to call it. These are, and, and libertarians are somewhat included in this. So it's not like they're all Nazis, but it's, it's basically anyone who's identifies as being on the right, who's outside of the sort of mainstream right wing, Institutions and narratives, which are sort of very, you know, either sort of neoliberal or paleocon, um, and they don't really deviate too far from either of those directions. Um, because I was trying, as a Jewish man, I was trying to get a pulse on okay, well, is this threat of white nationalism, uh, of, you know, of an authoritarian sort of ethno state? Type thing coming out of the Trump movement. Is this actually real? Like, is this right. a real fear? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my position from the beginning has always been uh, also that the more civil unrest there is, the more racial strife in politics there are, uh, the worse things are going to be for Jews. That's just an objective right. fact in every. Yeah. I, country. as also a
1: Jew, I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And I don't think a lot of people that. I talk to, especially my non-Jewish friends, seem to understand this fact. Um, they they actually interpret this as, "Oh, I'm defending my whiteness," um, and I, you know, and I'm concerned about, uh, you know, the loss of white majorities or, um, right. you know, the uh, the denigration of white culture. And to be fair, I think there are legitimate grievances grievances that the white identitarians have. Um, when I when you know, I, I follow some of them on Twitter, some of them that are actually explicitly anti Semitic and um, they're confused, obviously, about the way that a lot yeah, of, but a works. Lot
1: of things, Yeah,
0: <laughs> But but they do have some things that they complain about that are are not wrong. And that as a Jew I can empathize with because I can see them I can see that turning into a kind of resentment that just mm-hmm. grows and grows until one day it becomes violent.
1: Yeah, Um, I think Jews Jews are in an interesting place. You know, I've always thought, look, like, there's there's a group among whom white is bad, right? And what do they think Jews are? They think Jews are white. And there's a group among whom being non-white. And what do they think? They think Jews are non-white, right? So (laughs) you, you you want to talk about being politically homeless, like, Jews are like the 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 you know we're the e- eternally homeless you know of the world right like I I think that's why there that's are so many to Jews be, you know in the IDW. yeah I think that's why there's so many Jews in the IDW it's very hard to find a place and we also you know I don't even know if this makes sense maybe this is like an ancestor memories theory or something but it's also you know we have a we have a cultural tradition of this sort of homelessness and of being on the outside. Um, I think it's interesting what you said about the dissident right. Um, So the first thing I started thinking about was like, okay, I think I understand what you mean when you say dissident right, right? Um, Then I was thinking, well, who is the dissident left? So I think a lot of social justice people actually would think of themselves as being on the dissident left, right? A lot of the most most social justice-oriented voices would say, look, like Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi is not like, Going to go towards a police station, right? Um, sure, but
0: th- those are just the. To me, those are like the, they're, they're, they're the, the henchmen of like the ruling class, right? I uh-huh. think that they're the rebels.
1: Yeah, like, I definitely think. I definitely I, think. There's I, think a a real, with that. I think there yeah, is a real. I think there is a real
0: dissident right, and I think the dissident. Oh, sorry, a dissident left, uh-huh. and I think that the dissident left, as it exists, is actually, is actually anti woke politics um they see through sort of the facade of woke capital like the way in which all this stuff is actually supported by the dominant culture
1: right Um, so that's actually a really interesting group that i I wish i knew more about them to talk more about them i would say like anna cashian um yeah so she was on the portal right so mm -hmm. that's that is something i've always thought there has always been a left-wing critique of identity politics and a left-wing critique of social justice movements. And the intellectual dark web, kind of as an intellectual project, I don't think has ever been active enough at integrating that, at publishing that, you know, at using their stuff as a platform for that, um, and at thinking through what are the linkages between this, what you might call the centrist critique of identity politics versus the left wing and the right wing critiques of identity politics. Right. Um, and that is, you know, somebody like Adolf Reed, you know, who's, who has always been, who says, you know, you know, back five years ago said black lives matter is a neoliberal blah, 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 you know, um, it's, you know, and says things like, you know, you're just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic if you're trying to get You know, there's this joke people made during Clinton's campaign about how, you know, she wanted like a higher proportion of women like bombing weddings in the Middle East or something like that. Right. And they're just like, you know, they think that like the the issues of representation are like so secondary to the political issues of like, you know, are we bombing innocent people and stuff like that. Um, oh, it's, it's
0: whether yeah. you're more interested in like the symbolic victory
1: or right, exactly, in actually yeah. changing the structure.
0: Yeah, so of, that's uh, the
1: way they see it. And that's something that, you know, I think we were talking before about whether the IDW really was post-political, and I tend to think to be quite honest, if the IDW really were post-political, there would have been more success at at integrating the left wing uh, critique of social justice and at featuring it um mm. and uh there well, i don't
0: i think they're straying away sorry to interrupt you yeah no problem I, I think so what i get from my leftist friends that i talk to about this who are not uh super woke uh-huh. um they're still sort of pro black lives matter and sort of you know they'll say things like you know acab and all that stuff um mm-hmm. sort of jeeringly but their main issue is that they just see the identity politics or wokeness, whatever you want to call it, being absorbed into the, into basically the neoliberal framework. Like you just get this globalist elite that sort of has these elite cultural signifiers. And as long as you can say the words correctly and toe the line, they're willing to have you. And they don't actually care about where you are, what color you, you you are, as long as you can get the right credentials, uh, you're in the club. And, um, he comes from more of like a, you know, Marxist, I would say communist background and his, his, his whole critique of it is just like, well, look, they just aren't talking enough about class. Class is like still the primary divider of driver of inequality. And even for something like police violence, which is on everyone's mind, class is the more determining factor than race. It just is. And people don't want to talk about that because that actually upsets the people with power.
1: Yeah. And this is something, you know, and this is why, you know, people are, people are worried about the, I, I don't think it's ever going to actually happen for a lot of reasons, but people are worried about this prospect of a sort of anti-woke, they call it the red-brown alliance, right? Because of this, this memory of, of, you know, I don't even, I don't know the history of Weimar Germany, but, or, or, or of early Nazi Germany, but there, the, you know, there's this, this alliance between the Nazis and certain communists. Um, but, you know, Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson talks about class, right? Tucker Carlson has even praised, you know, praised some of Liz Warren's economic message. Um, I think that, and if if you, you know, the National conservatism conference in d c, where you had people like Josh Hawley and um Orin, what's his name? Orrin Cass, I think, um mm. speaking. And uh, the journal American Affairs, um, which started as a pro-Trump journal, but now has become this sort of, uh, b- basically, uh, a journal of, I guess you would call it the dissident, right? I don't even know exactly, you know, it's sort of, it's just a good journal. They publish, you know, they publish a lot of really interesting people. Um Their view is this kind of anti what they call fusionism. Um, So they just think. So this is kind of a metapolitical view. You know, in American politics, you have these positions that are taken to go together. Right. You have um, wokeism is taken to go together with, uh, you know, slightly lefty economic politics right and anti wokeism is taken and cultural conservatism is taken to go with libertarianism and uh, so what American affairs really opposes is they call this fusionism they say there's no reason this these particular fusions of views there's no you know there's no logical requirement why would it be a requirement that the side that has the libertarians, is also the side that's opposed to abortion. There's no, you know, there's no philosophical reason. There's no reason from political theory why those would be the two sides that's gonna get going together. And I think people have this dream in this sort of group, which is not the IDW now. Now we're talking about a a kind of different, a different group that has developed. Um, There's this dream of a reorganization of American politics whereby, you know, the people who have certain kinds of culturally conservative views are allied with the people who have kind of, uh, you know, what you might call radical or cl- at least class-based um, leftist views on economics. And that, that I think, that to me is like right now an exciting idea. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that that's something that you know it would have been it would have been interesting to see how the IDW inter- interacted with it um, at various points in its history. Um, but also, you know, that's also a very kind of U.S.-based. A lot of the IDW is not is not a United States movement, right? Um, you have people from Australia, people from Great Britain, people from Canada, um, and people from you know non-anglophone countries. Um, and, uh, so I think, so I think that maybe the anti-fusionism is a more, is a more classically American concern. Um, although you see it, you see it in Britain at least too with the, with, um, no, I don't understand anything about British politics, but I know that I have a lot of Twitter mutuals who are, who call themselves the blue labor or the red Tories, right? Um, I don't know really what the difference between I guess the difference is just who you vote for, um, but the the blue the blue Labour and the red Tories I think are taken to be the people who combine um, the sort of the sort of economic views of the Labour Party with the with the cultural conservatism that you might find on the right side of the Tories, um, and yeah, this is something if you look. At the elite position in the u.s has always been a kind of um you know what i don't know if people even say this before but you know a lot of people would say oh i'm i'm socially liberal conservative right that was like the and that's sort of like the libertarian on, on everything view right that's you know sort of socially libertarian and economically libertarian right so it sounds it sounds weird but actually philosophically it makes a lot of sense you kind of you know leave people to their own devices um and it uh, turns out that there's probably more Americans who are socially conservative and fiscally liberal than the other way around. Um, and that's the yeah, position this that... Yeah, is, and
0: this is the axis on which the, the nationalists are sort of coming together yeah. with the populist right or the populist yeah. left. populist right and the populist left are basically realizing that they can gang up on the, the globalists on either side, who are not actually their friends. Um, yeah. On their own side. And so this part of this realignment is, you know, is when you get Tucker Carlson promoting, as you said, like, you know, Liz Warren's book, um, The Two Income Trap, because they're actually both uh, rationally concerned about uh, in the realm of domestic politics, like what's the effect of, you know, high levels of immigration and the fact that people can't form families and get married and, you know, have kids. Uh, the the populist left and the populist right actually should be aligned on that. So that's sort right. of the the the, the anti-fusionist um, position coming coming to light. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. The the IDW hasn't been totally separate from this. I mean, Eric Weinstein has pointed this out that sort of the old left used to care about things like the family and used to care about uh, immigration and they didn't have this <clears throat> radical view that they actually weirdly now share with like the Democratic Party actually shares the thoughts about free trade and about unlimited immigration Uh with the libertarians yep so it's like the Koch brothers and Nancy Pelosi are both in agreement Uh um
1: on basically Bernie Sanders said in 2015 he said open borders is a Koch brothers proposal I don't know if he was right about I don't I don't know anything about these issues but um Hmm. that was the stance he took at least
0: well, yeah, um, they're, they're sort of the, the go-to right-wing billionaire villains.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, you know, they're causing everything to go wrong, yeah. just like Soros.
1: Exactly, uh,
0: yeah. But, um, yeah, so, like, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, One more thing I just wanted to talk to you about was this, uh-huh. this, this question of, like, you brought up that you 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 don't think that they've successfully established any kind of independent platforms. Now, obviously, they've started a lot of platforms. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sam Harris, well, so, so let me just let me yeah, just yeah. preface this by saying, you know, um, Dave Rubin has a software company, Locals, he started, which is support, supposed to sort of be the antithetical to sort of Google and Twitter who are sort of moderating your content. And they sort of promise to sort of, you know, they're sort of like gab in, in terms of what they're saying is we're a social network, but we're only going to get rid of you if you say something illegal. Uh-huh. Um, and so you have basically First Amendment protection. Uh, under that platform. Jordan Peterson has also started a company called ThinkSpot. Uh, Obviously, um, Sam Harris has always been on his own independent platform under his name. And um, the one thing that I'm concerned about is this move that Joe Rogan has made over to Spotify, where he's Uh made this licensing deal with them. Now, obviously, anybody that's been listening to this discourse knows that he's worried about getting booted from YouTube, right? Uh And you, you know, the effects of YouTube censorship. But my thing is, I think that this move is going to actually make him more fragile than he is right now, because now anyone that wants to get Joe Rogan canceled, just pressure Spotify.
1: Right. As soon as he Spotify, moves over, yeah. they now
0: have a node where they can just go directly and say, look, you have a licensing deal with this guy, get him off the air or make him start saying these things or, you know, whatever. And I just, he's saying he doesn't expect them to ever, bother him that he said they haven't bothered him so far about anything but i i i definitely know that the mob is going to go after spotify because they know that that's a target that they can use to start trying to pressure him what do you think is yeah. going to happen
1: there? yeah i mean i don't know anything about spotify i guess my concern is you know when i talk about an alternative platform look Joe Rogan and Sam Harris are always going to be okay, right? They're always going to have an audience. They're doing great. You know, Claire Lemon at Quillette is always going to do great. Everybody's always going to want to know what she's talking about. In academia and the media, what you have is a system for incentivizing and rewarding uh, not just you know a half dozen very prominent figureheads, but you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people doing writing and thinking in a certain way, kind of in a distributed way, right? Throughout all the universities of the country, all of the op-ed pages of the country, you know, all of the opinion shows, interview shows of the country. Um, and of course, you know, in human resources departments, you know, you have the same thing and corporate diversity trainings and things like that. Um, So when I talk about a platform, I don't just mean, like the figureheads are going to be fine. And a lot of the time, if somebody gets prominently fired, they'll be able to set up like a GoFundMe. Like James Damore made made his year's salary in like two days after being fired, you know, on his GoFundMe. I think I personally, if I were canceled, quote unquote, I think I would probably be fine. I would be able to, You know i have enough connections that i would be supported um but that's after years of work of developing those connections right
0: yeah like so i have a platform that's relatively brand new if i got you know canceled tomorrow i would have to either abandon this or i would have to you know find some other way to to make my living basically
1: or or the other option would be to kind of lean into it and use the cancellation as you know they're coming to get me which is all you know which is which, what which
0: is what uh, it's pretty common now. Um, yeah,
1: it's a bit disingenuous sometimes, but it's also like sometimes it's all you have, right? Um and so when I talk about a platform, I'm really talking about like when that enormous system, you know, of of all these all these people who are who are being incentivized and a lot of them disagree with it, right? Like if you talk to your kind of average academic or journalist, they will tell you, sure, yes, I have to say that I believe things that I don't believe. I have to, you know, I I have problems with, with what's going on in identitarian discourse and in the kind of the regressivism and the anti-free speech stances of the people around me. But, you know, they'll say, well, I kind of agree with it in broad strokes and anyway, I don't want to lose my job. Right. Um, and when I talk about like making inroads, I think it would either be kind of starting to develop something like that, where it's not just a few prominent figureheads, um, but where there's a real kind of system, e- either uh, like an alternative, you know, like a new, a new academia, or like a new set of journals and and magazines and things like that. Um, and, like, let's not, nothing, nothing against them, but, like, you know, like, Quillette is doing great. It's doing amazingly well, but they don't even have, like, a print edition, right? It's not like, Quillette is, has not replaced the whole system of The Atlantic and The New Republic and all these other magazines. Um, and the, the other way to do it would, instead of setting up your own system, would be to have people say, okay, look, I, you, like, you've been very successful and you've also made some of your points convincingly, so we want to integrate you into our system we want to have idw academics we want to have idw op-ed writers we're not going to cancel you right we want this perspective kind of as part of our broader system and we want to have the discussion and i think that although there are a lot of people like that if you look at the dynamics that's not happening either and you can see it with what's happening on the on the new york times op-ed page um so when I talk about a platform, obviously there are these people, the kind of central, you know, and this maybe goes back to like the way in which you were talking about IDW as this small group of people. And I thought of it kind of as this broader, this kind of diaspora, right? Um, yeah, for the small group of people, they're going to be able to make a living kind of just talk, thinking through the stuff that concerns them and interests them. Um, they're always going to have a platform. They're doing well on Twitter. They're going to always have bylines. They're always going to be able to make money doing podcasts and, and writing. Um, but um, the success of the people they're opposing and the ideas they're opposing doesn't come from the prominence of just a few major people, right? For every, for every of nehisi Coates, there's like a thousand people you've never heard of who are kind of writing similarly maybe not as well you know maybe not as eloquently but who have kind of similar ideas who are in academic departments and op-ed pages and things like that
0: sure but Um, but isn't isn't some of that just the the fact that these ideologies uh, have been morphing and evolving over you know decades some would argue like as far back
1: as the last hundred years um yeah maybe it'll take time maybe it'll take time um Maybe maybe it'll happen very gradually. Um, they've been
0: they've just been they've been percolating, and so they've they've infiltrated institutions of power. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with say uh, let's say Eric Weinstein's take, which is that sort of we need to take the New York Times back. I don't think that's going to ever happen. I think right. that what will happen is that new institutions will come up, and eventually, they will. Um, they will supersede them because they're going to be hopefully more, more economically viable, but we'll see.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess we will see, you know, I'm not good at at making predictions. um, But I think right now looking at what's going on, um, it may be a moment for some like reflection and regrouping and thinking about, you know, just what have we achieved? I know like for me personally, in the current moment, for all I've written and all the new connections I've made and all the people who have stuck by me, as I've kind of started to say increasingly unpopular things, um, the current energy, the combination of the energy around police brutality, which is an issue that politically I, you know, I know nothing about. Um, I don't have any reason to speak out on that issue because I just have no, I have no information that could help anybody. Um, with, you know with the the cancellations and the firings at you know at universities and at media corporations um, I, I I just think it, it may be it may be a moment for some reflection at, about just what have we achieved and uh, do we have the sort of um, cultural presence in the moment in this moment that we would want to have to be able to, um, develop a different kind of discussion about some of these issues. Um, and I think, um, I think, yeah, maybe it'll take some time. Um, but at the moment, like just for me personally, I kind of, I I can't help sometimes, but feel that I'm like right back like where I started five years ago when I started thinking through these things, right? Like that it's not, mm-hmm. not much has changed since back that, you know, all my friends on Facebook were in favor of the, the protest at all the colleges, you know, and were you know, and were pro BLM and then we're pro me too. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to think about.
0: And they told you that your, your free speech concerns were nonsense. And yeah, they were, yeah, they, the university. They, yeah, and...
1: exactly. Yeah. And, uh, I have to think about have I really made any, like it's a personal matter for me. Have I really made any headway with anybody? Have I really found like a platform where I feel confident um, putting my views out there? And uh, you know, in terms of the IDW in general, you know, just who, you know, just who is left? If, if so many-
0: Jordan's MIA guys, we don't know where he went.
1: Yeah, and much as I've been critical of him, he, you know, it's it's nice to have, you know, Uncle Jordan, um, and yeah. So I think th- there's just a question of how much headway has been made, how much headway is left to be made, and whether the current kind of tack has been successful um, at combating some of these things. If instead, as we talked about, maybe it has an symbiotic relationship um, with the things that it poses and has sort of Um, you know, reveled in the power of social justice that the, you know, the more or of identity politics or whatever you want to call it that the woker people get um, the more successful Aquilead gets but never as successful as the things it opposes Um, Mm. so yeah I think think right now it's a good time for reflection on these issues Um, but as you've heard I don't have any answers I don't have like a clear view myself
0: so I actually have some interesting thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about that problem too. Just the dismay that I feel when I look around and I feel like I've been trying to make these arguments for years and people weren't listening to me before. And now that they're all emotionally riled up, they're even less likely to listen now, even though it's sort of the, like it's almost like I'm watching the crisis unfold that I've been trying to tell everybody was going to happen. Um, and my two thoughts on this are this are, are two things. There are two things that we should do as individuals to sort of move forward. One, the first step is to become uncancelable. Uh-huh. So you were talking about this with reference to yourself where you said, look, I could probably get canceled tomorrow. And given the amount of work that I've done up until this point, I might have a, a big enough, um, you know, raft to kind of float off from this. Right. And, and you think that you wouldn't, it wouldn't be the end of your, your life. Right. Uh, right.
1: But my life, you know, I would have to kind of sh- for donations and things like that and I would have to kind of take positions that I'm comfortable taking and I would lose friends.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, it would obviously be extremely painful and there would be a lot lost. Um, that's no doubt about it. And the way in which you'd be interacting with society for a while would be warped. Um, right. But. I I think that as an individual, if you can be on the way to becoming uncancelable, that's the first step. So the first step is to make it so that you're not economically dependent on somebody else who can fire you or uh, some larger institution that can either put you on or put you off at a moment's notice, and that that'll just be the end of your your economic viability. So Mm -hmm. the first step is to establish economic security by becoming... Uh, uncancelable and then my my second uh, point of attack or I guess way in which our our skills need to be upgraded to deal with this situation is to move into persuasion Um, so I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of people uh, on the IDW have been making people like Ben Shapiro make this all the time is thinking that the way that you're going to win people over and the way that you're going to convince them to come to your side is through facts and reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's a uh, an old, rather outdated form of thinking about uh, how to operate in politics, and it's based on this sort of um, uh, academic kind of view of political history and political theory, as if the way that politics happened throughout history was by you know the the right argument winning over the wrong one, mm-hmm. right? And 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 you and I both know. The way that history actually works is the, the, it's not about who's right. It's just whoever wins, right? right? I guess so. The it's just the winner wins and the loser loses. And, um, you can argue about you know whether or not certain movements get to continue on after they've been extinguished and you know they rearise later and and whatnot. But, the fact of the matter is, uh, if what we're in is something like post truth politics, like a post modern, political state. Where nobody can actually make sense of anything and because of the ideological bubbles that we're in, nobody can even hardly, you know, have a conversation with each other about mm-hmm. what are the agreed upon facts. Then the the thing to do in that situation is to actually upgrade your skill at being persuasive. Because you can use persuasion, uh, which can exist outside the realm of facts, and you and, and if you if you become a better persuader, you'll win people over to your side, you'll get people to listen to you. You'll get them open so that they can actually be receptive to your arguments. And you're not actually coming at them from the super rational, logical frame of here are my reasons why your ideology is wrong, why the slogans you're saying don't make any sense. Look, here, I've got some crime statistics to show you, because obviously none of that works and we know it doesn't work. Those are my thoughts on it. That's how I think we can start to
1: move forward. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. The truth personally is just that like. There's no, you know, the only way I know how to move people is by having arguments with them, right? You know, um, the the you know the only thing I know how to do is critique and introduce new ones, um, and whatever whatever might you know whatever else winning might involve, you know whether it's you know having a nice slogan or flashy colors or whether it's you know manpower to pull down statues and things like that. Um, that's not, you know, that's not something where I'm going to have an advantage. Something I wrote in my, in the Peterson Chapa review was, you know, I think to a certain extent, ideological alignment can sometimes come from just people's capacities rather than people's beliefs. So, you know, everybody has a kind of... This would be more like, I mean, so,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. It's just like, we know from social psychology that you're the ideology that you adapt is more a reflection of temperament than anything else
1: yeah so i think that this would be the part of temperament that is like what skills you have or what talents you have right so i think when you look at the idw there are so there are people social justice oriented who still talk about or talk with idw people a lot um like uh, Jeffrey Sachs and Chris Cavanaugh, for example, who I'm friendly with. You know, we disagree all the time, but I'm friendly with them. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that they have they have this sort of, um, you know, in terms of what abilities they have and what things they enjoy doing, they enjoy doing the same sorts of things that IDW enjoy, members enjoy doing, right? They enjoy kind of looking at the data and going through the arguments, right? And like, and like evaluating these things. Um, And if it turns out that, if it turns out, and you know, like if you look at the Chapa left, there are people who misspelling people's names on purpose and like saying ironic things, you know, and telling people that they're, you know, if somebody makes a tweet they don't like, they say things like you like showed your ass or whatever, like whatever that means, you know, they like saying things like that. That's what's fun for them. And then, you know, like the Jordan Peterson, you know, Yeah. So that's like a level of irony that like some of us are bad at. Um, Some of us aren't that funny. And uh, so that's kind of what I talked about in that article. And I think that one problem may be if I'm right, that one kind of driver of where people find themselves ideologically is what capacities they have. And if it turns out that this capacity for making these sorts of arguments and evaluating this sort of information and kind of you know, not making up your mind so quickly and kind of revalidating your views and trying to question your cognitive biases or whatever. Um, if it turns out that that is actually like politically hopeless, then the group of people who kind of or themselves because that's what they enjoy doing, it's going to be a politically hopeless, right? It might just be unavoidable um, that, that they're not going to have much chance. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people don't. You know, maybe people don't organize themselves by their capacity. I, um, I, I could be wrong.
0: Well, I got the sense that there are two sort of primary things that are characteristic of the IDW types. One is that they um, tend to be not not all of them are this way, but they tend to be first principles thinkers and that they sort of want to walk through the, the logic of what we're talking about step by step from, you know, the initial assumptions on forward um, and make sure as much as possible that it's consistent. And then the other main characteristic is that they all have a pretty high, um, pretty high on the disagreeableness scale. So they have a pretty Mm -hmm. high tolerance for social ostracism for being socially rejected and this willingness to stand up and believe that they're right when everybody else around them is telling them that they're wrong. Um, and if it's true that this, that the institutions have been selecting against this kind of personality for a long time, which I think they have, um, especially media, especially academia, um, the sort of chattering classes, uh, then, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe there's just not going to be enough of a high concentration of them uh, in important places to to have an effective political movement. But I'm, I'm unsure about that myself.
1: Uh. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, Oliver, uh, this has been really enjoyable. Uh, I yeah, I, I had, had a lot of
1: fun. We we covered we covered a, a lot of topics. Um, yeah.
0: I was gonna say I don't know how much headway we made on figuring out whether the IDW is still a thing or not a thing. I think yeah. we did make a little bit. You know, I I, I I do agree with your characterization that I think the IDW is a much more broader, um, decentralized group or collective uh, than. Uh, Maybe I I had initially characterized it as or as as could be characterized by sort of the the figureheads. And if you include everybody that's trying to have conversations like these um, and that's following these various thinkers and trying to sort of figure out what a politics is going to look like uh, that's not so tribal, that's not uh, moving towards these sort of self-extinguishing dynamics, then I think uh, we could definitely have a lot more people to be included in that. So uh, that's one like really, really big point where um, this has helped clarify my thinking a little bit. Um, And I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, it was great talking to you.
0: Yep, I'll see you around. Yep, see ya.